This is exactly right. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire Leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're back with you again to talk about films and other things. Danielle, what's happening? Not much. I made a really good dinner for myself last night. You know what's 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 weird and I like it, but I also don't like it, is that I'm an excellent cook and nobody will ever know because I only ever cook for myself. I think I, I think about that all the time with literally everything in my life. <laughs> Like, I'm the only one that knows that I can make salmon burgers with a side of Brussels sprouts and a honey balsamic vinegar uh, uh, glaze. Yeah. No, I think about that, too. I'm like, look at all the great books I have. Look at all the great movies I have. Look at my lifestyle. Nobody look at knows. all my things. I'm like, no, oh, no, no one will look at them because I live alone. <laughs> I can't prove anything to anybody. So like, I totally understand what you're saying. Yeah. Like, nobody will ever know how rad I am. <laughs> I think it's time. To play another round of serial killer or self-care. Oh, my God. I was waiting for this day since the last time we did this game. So remember the rules. If you're a first-time listener or if you don't remember the rules, Millie has to guess what my answers would be. And if this is whatever I'm going to present to her is a serial killer move or an act of self-care. That's right. And I'm again, I am embodying your psyche. So this is me trying to figure out what you would say. Exactly. Okay. It's a very selfish game. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I get it wrong, which makes me feel like a bad friend. Like, I got one right last time. Oh, you're not wrong. It's hard. It's a hard game to play. And it's interesting for that reason, because you're like, oh, I think I know her enough to think that she would answer this way, and then I surprise you, and then we learn more about each other. But see, here's the thing is that I I last time it was very clear that you were going to say serial killer for every single one except but for I one. <laughs> and then and then the one that I thought you were going to say serial killer it actually wasn't the it wasn't that answer. So <laughs> But again, that was the hard question. That was the animal one. That's right. That's right. That was that's a hard question owning more than 10 pets. <laughs> like what normal person would say self-care? <laughs> that was probably the funniest one, by the way. When I was thinking about it later, I was like, yeah, that is hilarious that that, that is something that she thinks is self-care. Exactly. It's fun. Yeah. So don't, don't even worry about it if you get some wrong, because 
I am an unhinged person. So it's kind of like you're trying to get into the mind of someone who who just ain't right. Yeah. Well, no, let's let's go. Cause I'm I gotta redeem All right. myself. All right. I'm gonna give you the first one. Serial killer or self-care. Watching five hours of intervention in one sitting. Uh self-care. One hundred percent. I knew it. <laughs> Yes. You're, you're learning things about the world. You're learning things about people. You're in it. Okay. The only reason why I knew that is because you had mentioned at a certain point, I don't know if this was during a normal feed episode or if it was a bonus, that you were watching Intervention a lot because you were writing. Yeah, I was doing some research for an idea that I had for a novel. Okay. And so I was watching a lot of intervention. And at one point, I did watch more than five hours in one sitting. And I was like, ooh, what's wrong with me? But this also felt like a nice afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's so, I mean, I guess maybe I I knew that. I knew that answer before. So. Well, I feel like you'll know this one, too. Oh, okay. Next, second question. Serial killer or self-care? There are like there. There are also more questions this time, so you have more chances to get them right. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Second question: Watching five hours of Real Housewives in one sitting. Um. Mm, serial killer. Yup. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 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 Because you're just yes. watching women yell at each other for five hours straight. Like that's not good for you. That's a serial killer move. <laughs> And I know that 90% of our listeners do it, and I'm so sorry to tell you that's what I think. Look, I I feel very similarly. I don't actually watch The Housewives, but I watch Vanderpump, and I have watched so... Like, there have been days where I've watched so many Vanderpump episodes in a row that I felt like I needed to, like, put myself in a jail. Like, I was like, this is so psychotic. I can't believe I'm doing this, so... Exactly. You got your two for two! Oh, my God! (laughs) You're two I'm for two. Extremely excited that I've gotten <laughs> two right. All right. My are poor you ready showing for the next last one? time. Yeah, are yeah. Are you ready for the next one? All right. Serial killer or self care? Pilates. Pilates. Mm. I want to say serial killer. Absolutely correct. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. I can't be stopped. Who the fuck says to themselves, you know what I'm going to do for exercise? Or the, I'm thinking more like the inventor of Pilates, right? And it's like, I'm going to put you on a board and put your legs and all these stra- legs and arms and all these straps uh-huh. and contraptions and like move you and manipulate your body and move you around. That's fucking serial killer thinking that made its way into exercise. Uh, so the only time in my life that I did Pilates is when I lived in Los Angeles, California. And I went to that Pilates place in Hollywood that has the logo looks like the Come to Garcon yes. logo. Do you know yes. what I'm saying? It's got the like the heart with the eyes. And, yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, look, the the risk of of exercising in LA is that you will be a normal person amongst the most beautiful fit people you've ever seen in your life. And that yes. was me at that fucking Pilates place. Like they'd put you on the What's the name of that thing? Is it called the reductor or the re- it's like the Pilates reformer. reformer. It's called the reformer, yeah. right? And it looks like this medieval torture device. And, you know, I'm sitting on mm-hmm. there like struggling to stay on this stupid fucking thing. And meanwhile, there's like professional ballerinas that are like, you know, doing everything perfectly. 
And I was just like, I want to be good at this. Keep going. You will be good at this one day. And I never, I never got there. And then I stopped. So, because <laughs> you look again, like you look at it from the outside in, you just dropped to earth. You've never seen a Pilates reformer. And you yeah. see, you're looking from the, looking at the outside of this Pilates studio. What does it look like to you? It looks like torture devices. There's a bunch of people just like pulling strings to their death while exactly. their things are moving on like a, wooden thing it's it looks crazy to i don't who- i don't want to ever reenact the in sync no strings attached era <laughs> for my own bottle and it could be great for my body i'm sure it is i'm not capping on you if you do pilates i'm just saying that from the outside in total serial killer situation yeah i think there are uh less serial killer ways to exercise could not agree more i'm like you're killing it dude i'm psyched this next next one is hard this next one is hard but okay i have faith i have faith okay question four serial killer or self-care day hiking without a backpack but you have a water bottle hanging from your belt loop by a carabiner (laughs) okay i have to divorce what i would say (laughs) about this and and just purely think of it in terms of what you would say serial killer that's actually self-care. Wow! Because <laughs> I feel like if you're able to just get yourself out of your house or your car or whatever and just be like, you know what? I'll be fine with a bottle of water. That's really self-sufficient. You have a lot of faith in yourself to just like take a walk, take a nice hike and just kind of get <laughs> through it with no no backpack. You don't need to have like the kitchen sink with you. I th- it's impressive to me and it's self-care. So. <laughs> Are you saying that people who do carry a day pack are serial killers? Yeah, 100%. I'm always thinking knives are in there. Always. It could be insulin. It could be, like, necessary shit for that. And I'm always like, "Mm, you're hiking with a backpack, you're going to kill somebody. I've seen too many movies. (laughs) I've read too too many news stories. Backpack on a hike equals murder. This is the most convoluted theory. Um, (laughs) let Let me try to unpack it a little bit. So... If you carry a day pack mm-hmm. for a hike, you're a serial killer because you just have too many products on your person. And, and because one of those products is probably a knife or something. Oh, okay. Okay. Like to harm somebody. Okay. So if you carry a day pack, you might be strapped, is what yeah. you're saying. Absolutely. Whereas if you are are bare, but yep. just a water bottle, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> self-care what if you were carrying a knife o- along the pant leg or something like you don't know what, just because you're not carrying it in a backpack doesn't mean you don't have it this is true this is true but i feel like it's harder to access like a backpack makes it so easy for you to pull out your weapon you could have a hammer in there you could have a fucking pickaxe in there Yo, I would carry a knife. Sometimes I do carry a knife when I'm out hiking, though. <laughs> what if you get a fucking mountain lion in your face? Like, absolutely, and you should. If you if you come across P twenty three or whatever that thing was, you got to be ready. <laughs> Poor P twenty three. That beloved P twenty three. You are bringing this episode down to the fucking ocean floor. If I'm on a hike and I come across a beloved mountain lion, I'm going to stab it. Okay? (laughs) Well, to be completely honest, I mean, I think it is 
unreasonable to think that a wild animal wouldn't act wildly. Right. Even if it was beloved. Do you know what I'm saying? I agree. And also, so, again, in terms of the, the question, I think you probably you should be carrying a knife. But in my mind's eye, if I see someone approaching me with just a water bottle hanging on a belt loop and their hand isn't like in their pocket or something, I'm like, sure. all right, they're just out for a walk. Yeah. If I see you coming up a mountain with like gear and you're not camping, like there's no tent, you're just got like a bunch of gear. I'm like, what the fuck are you planning to do out here? <laughs> this is supposed to just be a walk and you got all this gear. I will also accept a water bottle and a hiking stick. But if you have a backpack of any kind, serial killer. I'm super guilty of this. This is why I'm trying to talk you out of it. I'm like, I know you I, are. I know you are. Because <laughs> people look at you and they're like, you're going to go ahead and say your, your girl's going to kill someone? <laughs> and I'm like, yes. If I approached Millie on a hiking trail, I didn't know her. I would think she was going to kill me. But I'm also a classic over-preparer, though. That's the thing. Is right. that I'm like, I'm a gear grandpa. Like, I love oh, yeah. gear, you 100%. know. 100%. And I don't want to like be stuck out there. Like, trust me, I'm I'm not that athletic. If I get lost, I can't just have a water bottle. I have to be able to like fucking make my uh, makeshift shelter and all this shit. You know? Oh, the the part of this that we haven't discussed is that I would 100% die of exposure in the woods. <laughs> but nobody would think I was going to kill them while I was dying of exposure. Yeah, every time I do see somebody that only carries a water bottle, I'm like, wow. Very Spartan, very confident. Mm-hmm. You're you're like telling people, I'm not dying out here. I'm on a seven mile hike. I'm gonna be fine. Meanwhile, I'm like, no, I need my things in case I die. I'm only hiking a mile. I'm not. I'm not going on a <laughs> okay. a real trek. <laughs> yes. Like I live right near the Appalachian Trail. I've seen like a fraction of it. Like yeah. I'm not hiking more than a mile. If I if I come across, I was on a hike the other day. I was walking with a friend, and we came across someone who was like, oh yeah, there are bears. Like, bears are waking up and all the kind of... Or, oh, there's a snake. And I'm like, well, then we're turning around. The fuck? I'm not going to find the bear. I'm just <laughs> going back with my water bottle back to my car. <laughs> the fuck are you talking about? Wow. Okay. Yeah. This so, is interesting. I'm, thank you for chopping it up with me because I really had to talk that out. I Look, this is, a, again, this is a no-judgment zone. <laughs> except when it is. Except when you're judging. <laughs> but I'm never judging you. <laughs> Well, now, okay, so how many, I've gotten three correct. Three correct, one wrong. That's great. One wrong. And we got a few more to go. We got a few more to go. Now, here's one that might really throw you for a loop, considering the conversation we just had. Okay. Serial killer or self-care, hiking, runyon in L.A.? Oh, for you, serial killer. Yup. (laughs) (laughs) That fucking path, and if you've never watched the TV show episodes, it's a good precursor to what I'm about to say. Um, I feel like if you're hiking Runyon, you're not out for a real hike. You're out to be seen. And there's a level of sociopathy there that could lead to serial killer. Oh, God. I, what does it say about me that I actually loved Runyon? <laughs> Damn! You're just like straight up revealing yourself to be serial killer right now. I. But here's why. <laughs> because you could take your dog off leash there. And like, that's the thing that was like... Sophie fucking loved Running Canyon. And especially the side that's like 
not the fire roadside, but the one that has like the rocks and stuff. She right. fucking loved that shit. And I was Aww. like, oh, this is so great. Like wh- how, like what a place to be able to like take her dog off leash and they can just like chill and sniff and you don't have to worry Aww. about it. So anyway, that's why I loved it. But I get what you're saying because okay. it is, it is for serial killers for sure. But maybe I like it in spite of that, I guess. Maybe that would uh, well, be the an answer. I think it's safe to say that the serial killers have ruined Runyon. Yes. Like, the serial killers are the ones that are wearing that, like, predator mask that removes Thank the you. oxygen from their fucking body so they can, like, be more fit. The people that just want to walk with their dog or the normies. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you see someone running towards you uphill with one of those predator masks on, Tell me you don't think you're in the purge. Like, even if I'm on a hiking trail, I'm like, oh, damn, he's running to kill someone. Yeah, I think when people come to Runyon when, and they they want to be like an elite athlete about it, that's when it may be a serial killer territory. But people who just love to walk with their dogs without a leash. Yeah. Come on. I can get there. They, we should be the only people allowed on that mountain. I think segregation is now what we're proposing. <laughs> <laughs> we are somehow on the side of segregation for hiking trails. Like normies over here, psychos over here. In my world, that's how I would run things. Sorry. <laughs> thoughtful segregation. Thoughtful. Choose the side. Like. <laughs> Choose a lane. Like, just make a lane on these hiking trails. It's kind of like yeah. the way that you're like, you walk on the right, you pass on the left. Correct. Correct. Ooh, this is this is revealing some bad shit about us. <laughs> but that's the joy of this game. <laughs> yes. Yes. How how often I disagree with you, but you know, at the same time. Well, listen, we've done five questions and you've gotten two right. We got a couple okay. more to go. Two right. And, three right. No, three right. Three right. Yeah. Two wrong, three right. Okay. This next one is hard. And remember, you're thinking, how would I answer? Yes, yes, yes. All right. Serial killer or self-care. A cis man wearing one of those Irish clotter rings facing out to indicate that he's single. Okay, I don't even know. Wait, wait, wait. What is this? What is an Irish clotter ring? Oh, my God. It's like the ring with the heart that's being held by hands. No idea what you're talking about. Now I'm oh, Googling shit. it. Okay, they were uh, everywhere in my middle school growing up. It's a very middle school thing. Cl- okay. What is this? <laughs> so this is a ring. What is this? Yeah, that's the one. Oh, I'm so excited that I get to be the one to explain this because I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I want everyone who's like, that's not what it is, to just hold on because I know that I'm not going to get this 100% right. But it's supposed to indicate, I believe, in Irish culture, that your heart is open. And then when you turn it around to face the other way, it means that, like, you're taken. I have never seen or heard of this in my fucking life. What? I'm on the Wikipedia entry for it. What does the wiki say? A traditional Irish ring in which a heart represents love, the crown stands for loyalty, and the two clasped hands symbolize friendship? Okay, I... You're telling me that people in your middle school wore these? What Hell, is this? Yeah, it was like a little cult of people and it's a very like maybe it's a very northeastern thing. Okay. I'm I'm looking at it. Here are the rules according to Irish author Colin Murphy. <laughs> 
Okay. Um, on the right hand, with the point of the heart towards the fingertips, the wearer is single and might be looking for love. Yep. On the right hand, with the point of the heart towards the wrist, the wearer is in a relationship because somebody has captured their heart. See? On the left ring finger, with the point of the heart towards the fingers, the fingertips, the wearer is engaged. On the left ring finger, with the heart towards the wrist, the wearer is married. Are you joking right now? (laughs) Ireland, don't come for us. We love you. I love (laughs) Ireland. I love Irish people. I love Irish culture. This ring is fucking insane. So I'm thinking serial killer then. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I don't care what fucking hand you have it on. If you're a cis man wearing an Irish clotter ring with the heart pointed out, you have killed. You have killed. That, oh my God, that is a serial killer thing. If like a straight cis guy was like, hey, everyone, (laughs) I'm single. Look at the ring placement. I would be like, what in the fuck? Now, how do you think I came up with that one? (laughs) I have no idea. I was at the hardware store, my local hardware store, which I'm at constantly. And I thought, there's this guy there that that helps me frequently. And I thought he was kind of cute. And he was helping me with some paint. And then I saw that fucking ring. And I was like, I can't. Girl, no. Run. Okay, now I'm like, have I ever seen that ring in the world and, and I just didn't know what it was? Probably. Are you joking? I've, n- I've never even heard of it. This is so deeply fascinating You're going to see it everywhere now. You're going to see it everywhere. Okay. Are if you if you are a cishet man that has this ring, please email us at asawatyoudidpod at gmail.com because I am I just want to interview you. We need the details. Yes. And I don't want any like it's a fair family heirloom shit. Like, don't make me feel bad. <laughs> like, yeah, don't make us feel bad. I just need to know why you're wearing it because the concept of the ring, and maybe it's because I'm jaded and cynical, the concept of the ring has always struck me as extremely fucked up since I was a little kid. Wow. Okay. Now I, the minute we stop recording today, I am going to go like two hours on this <laughs> ring. That is so crazy. This, this beats the celebrity, like the Machine Gun Kelly, Megan Fox engagement ring with the fucking spikes in it. Okay. Like it beats all of that shit to me. To see a cishet man wearing that ring, I have questions. I'm surprised Machine Gun Kelly himself isn't wearing this ring. He probably is. He probably is he has Irish? Wrapped, he probably has one wrapped around his dick. Machine Gun Kelly? With the, <laughs> I like how you say it like he's a leprechaun. <laughs> Machine Gun Kelly? We are truly demolishing anyone who's Irish who listens to us. They are all turning off right now. No, they're like the sexiest uh, yes. na- nation in the world. I would they're never disrespect you. They're the best, but we just have questions and we need answers. So just know that we it comes from a place of love and concern and care. Yes. But we have questions. And I guarantee Machine Gun Kelly has a clotter ring wrapped around his fucking balls. With a spike pointing down to indicate that he's fucking engaged. I don't know. <laughs> like, he okay. had one specially made for his balls. How many have I gotten right? And now I'm com- <laughs> I am completely derailed off the I game. Think you're, I think you're three for three. So you got intervention right. Housewives right, Pilates right, backpack wrong, Runyon Canyon wrong, 
cis man wearing the cotter ring, right? So you're full. No, I got run in canyon correct. Oh, so if sorry. If I remember correctly. So sorry. So you yes. only have one wrong. That's pretty fucking good. Okay, we're going to do another one. Okay. I've got a lot more, but we'll do two more. Okay. Okay. Biohacking. Like very specific diets, cold plunges, etc. I'm going to say serial killer for you. Absolutely. Yeah! My <laughs> reign continues. I have never heard anyone talk about biohacking that didn't sound like Macho Man Randy Savage. Like, you got to do a cold plunge, brother. And I'm like, whoa, back that all the way up. <laughs> is there any biohacking thing that appeals to you at all? Or is it all just for serial killers? It's for me all for serial killers. Because it's like, why can't you just do a normal diet and exercise? Why do you have to? Yeah. Why does everyone have to? Anyone who takes anything to unnecessary extremes, I don't get it. I only eat one meal a day, brother. Oh, you know, I don't like that shit. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, I'm glad you found something that works for you, but what the fuck? Like, calm the fuck down? I'm sorry. If you don't eat, we can't hang. We can't hang. No. I just, I can't. And especially with the cold plunges, I've been seeing way too much about, like, I got a cold plunge pool. And I'm like, why? And they're like, we fill a fucking ice and water, and it's good for your arteries. It's good for you. And I'm like, probably, but I'll never try it because you're insane talking about it. Look, I did a cold plunge swim for New Year's Day once, like a, a million years ago. My friend Vanessa and I drove to the mountains and did this like New Year's Day, everybody jump in an ice cold river, swim out to a a, a buoy. What do you call it? Not a buoy. A buoy? Yeah, a buoy. buoy. <laughs> Cut that. A buoy. No, keep it in. A buoy. You swim out to a buoy. You swim out to Flavor Flav and yeah. then you turn around. <laughs> no, you you like jump into this ice cold lake, sw- swim out to like a touch point and then come back. I was so fucking distraught by that like <laughs> 25, 30 second event I thought, like, my entire body was going to go into shock and I would just die right on the spot. So I don't understand people who are just, like, doing that all willy-nilly every every day. day. Every day. And also, if you're doing it and it benefits you and whatever, great. Part of it for me is calling it biohacking. Ugh. Like, the terminology is just fucked. That's, what are you, who are you, like, Peter Thiel? Why the fuck would you say that shit? So gross. That's, like, such a tech bro thing. Ugh. (laughs) Hacking my bones. I'm hacking my bones in my body. I'm hacking my bio. I'm hacking my bio. That's disgusting. Okay, yes. Absolutely fucking serial killer shit. Thank... I agree with you like 100% on this. Oh my god. You're killing it. You're killing it. I'm gonna give you one more. Okay. Serial killer or self-care... And I'm not gonna even. I'm not even gonna look at you while I read this one. <laughs> okay, I will look at you then. I'm staring at my camera off. The camera is off because <laughs> I don't want you to be able to read my expression at all. Okay. Okay. Serial killer or self care? The rabbit vibrator. <laughs> Holy fucking shit! <laughs> I really have to divorce myself and my opinion from this because I know how I would fucking answer. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna say 
serial killer. 100% right. Yes, that's how I would answer too. Yes. 100% correct. Who in their right fucking mind? Again, to me, this is the same person who came up with Pilates, who's sitting in a room and is like, all right, you know what? It's going to make people feel really good. Yes, we have the, the, the dick. We have the dick part. Let's also add rabbit ears and a little rabbit face for the clit part and then add some beads behind it to spin around and then that whole thing vibrates. <laughs> Fucking serial killer. And I'm not trying to yuck your yum. I'm just saying, from my perspective, to sit in a room and think of that is a serial killer move. Okay, this is the one thing that Gen Z has gotten right is that they changed the design of vibrators. Now Absolutely. they're like vibrators are like sculptural, beautiful v- vases. Absolutely. You know? But in our day, they were horrifying, big pink dong monstrosities <laughs> with like, again, rabbit ears, beads. Like they were like, it's like fucking Mardi Gras. Like Mardi, who, yes. who thinks that you're like, you know what we really need to give people who want this vibrator? We need to give them the feeling like they're in a fucking carnival. Yes. Like a Gravitron. Like, why do I need all, like, it's too much. It's too much. <laughs> the, it was the opposite of discreet. Like all of no. these like sex toys from like the 90s and like they were just like absolutely like carnival adjacent like crazy jelly shoes, you know, like th- like everything was like that pink, like these like neon jelly shoe colors. <laughs> Scary. And then they put like Jenna Jameson on the package and you're just like, what the fuck? And now Gen what Z is like, fuck? no, we don't like all that shit. Like we Gen just- Gen Z is like, I need to be able to leave this on my coffee table when my parents come to visit. Yeah. And like they come in colors like avocado. Yeah. Not like hot pink and hot green with beads. The rabbit looks disgusting and terrifying. <laughs> like it doesn't even look like you're gonna have fun. God, that it looks so complicated and like. I know that there was like that was a, it was a huge deal when it came out. I think there was like a Sex in the City episode about it, wasn't yep. there? Yeah, I never owned one because I was seriously think that. I was just like, that thing is going to destroy my body. Like, that is so scary and weird. You're like, you know what you need? You need a vibrator that will cause you to also need an episiotomy when you're done with it. <laughs> like, what is happening? Who thinks of this shit? Like, it's someone, whoever designed that never looked at the holes on a human body. <laughs> Holy shit. I am thrilled that we have the same answer to that. <laughs> I was really afraid that you were going to, like, surprise me at the last minute. But I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so glad we think the same thing. I am also so thrilled because I think we are, we are sex-positive people. Yes. But you have to admit, even as a sex-positive person, that the rabbit vibrator is a serial killer move. God. Wow. Yeah, it just looks like it would just, like, cut up your insides so badly. <laughs> It's like the rabbit vibrator or that knife belt weird thing from Seven. Oh, my God. Like, show me the difference. Like, they're both terrifying to me in the same way. Yeah, it looks like some terrible attachment on, like, a food processor. It just looks crazy. Your KitchenAid blender paddle mixer. (laughs) 
or the oh rabbit. My God bless. <laughs> okay, I redeemed myself. This 100- episode, hundred. Nobody knows me like you know me, Millie. I mean, one hundred percent. And the hiking one was hard. Yeah. <laughs> Because again, a normal person would think a person hiking with just a water bottle yeah. is a serial killer. I think I could take you. Was that the only one I got wrong? See, yeah. Casey needs to be taking the score. I have no idea if I've won or lost. I, I feel like compared think, to the last time, though, I redeemed myself. Okay, again, you've got the first one, right? Intervention. Real Housewives, right? <laughs> Pilates, right? Day hiking, wrong. Runyon, right? The Clotter Ring, right? Biohacking, correct. And the vibrator, correct. You fucking crushed it. Yes. Yes. Well, once again, such a reveal into your fucking brain. Oh, more than I even want to reveal. I mean, I every time we do one of these, it's hilarious to me. But I also remember, oh, other people are going to hear this and think I'm a nightmare person. But that's fine. I don't think so. I, I, I truly believe in about two, at least two or three of these as my Excellent. own. Yeah. So Excellent. you're good. The, it was a blast to play it again. Thank you for bringing uh, more to the table. <laughs> always. And I got a lot more. And I, I also know that the mountain lion was P22. I think I said P23. You don't have to write in about that. I would still stab it <laughs> if it was alive and I came across it on a fucking mountain path and I was hiking. What if we just bleeped it out? Would that be mysterious if we bleeped out the name of the mountain lion? <laughs> Out of respect for the dead. Rest in peace, King. People would be like, why do they bleep out the name of that mountain lion? Oh, good. That'd be funny. <laughs> we don't know who owns the rights. We don't know who owns the rights. Who named it that? Who named yeah. it P-22? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. For nearly 25 years, Roseman University has challenged the status quo, transforming education and graduating competent and compassionate healthcare professionals. Roseman University is reimagining healthcare, healing patients and their families, solving health challenges by embracing discovery, and building programs that provide hope and improve health. Click the banner for more on Roseman's healthcare programs in nursing, pharmacy, graduate studies, and dental medicine, or see roseman.edu. Oh my gosh. Well, what now we have to do an episode after that shit. I know, I can't believe it. I can honestly play it all day, but I know we have to move on to our theme this week. We do indeed, and our theme this week is drop and give me 20. That's right. I I think this is another case of 
I want I came up with the actual theme. It was named terribly. And then you came in and made it nice. But tell tell the people what you were thinking about the theme. Um, okay, so I I think the general vibe was that I wanted to talk about movies that feature the military. And I my dad was in the military. He's retired. Um, so I grew up as a military brat, as they say. And I feel like it's just such a fascinating world. Mm-hmm. And also, when it comes to movies, it's kind of this like good Trojan horse to talk about like masculinity and repression and order. So it's kind of this like, mm-hmm. it's a way to kind of discuss themes um, that are just really interesting, I think, to to yeah. think about. So... I do too. And I think I was interested in doing this um, because I feel the same way about military movies that they're interesting to watch as someone who has never been in the military Mm -hmm. to kind of see like, well, what is that world about? I also have family members who have been active military, retired from the military. But I want to say right off the top, and I want you to hear me, listeners, because it's important to me. I am a pacifist. I don't believe in war. And so when I watch these movies, I'm looking at it from a completely different lens. Yeah. And I will also say that my film, between my film and Platoon, that I watched when I was like way too I watched when they came out. Yeah. So I was way too young to be watching these movies. This my movie came out in 1987. I was like nine years old <laughs> like watching these movies. And I think between that movie and, and Platoon. There was no way I was getting out of my childhood having any positive thoughts about the military. Yeah. Des- despite the fact that several of my family members are in the Army and the Marines. Yeah. Oh, look. I mean, it's a, it's very complicated because as much as, like, yeah. my family, you know, was essentially, like, ensconced in, like, military life, I, my, my sister and I, my, like, even my father at times <laughs> was, like, uh yeah, I don't care. Like it's not, you know, like it's not like my dad ever sold me on the idea of the military. Right. And yeah, there there are things about his experience that I think are way different than than kind of I don't know, maybe like even traditional stereotypes of of why people join the military. I mean, my dad joined right. the military because he was poor and wanted to go to college. Mm-hmm. And exactly that, I think, is a different entry point than somebody who just was like, I just want to hold a gun and go out and like do things. You know what I mean? Like completely complete. Well, that's exactly it with my family as well, yeah. is that I can't talk about these, you know, military movies or the military in general without acknowledging that, like, the reason that a lot of my family members joined the military is for the same reason right. that they were poor and wanted to have a viable life. Yeah. And that was the way that was presented to them back in, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond as having that. And so I think that to me is more interesting to discuss is not to vilify the individual people in the military, because we're not going to be doing that. But I want to say that a lot of my commentary about my film is about what the military is or like what that life is, what's interesting to me about it. And I like that we get to talk about challenging things together and kind of like, I just, I don't know, I just kind of wanted to dig into 
something that I don't know personally. Yeah. And I've only experienced through film and through family stories. And, yeah, you know, my great uncle retired from the military and bought a house and took care, you know, raised his three kids. And then two of his kids went into the military and like my granddad was in the military. Like people just, you know, it's a, it's a different entry point, you know, that I think is worth examining, but or at least worth stating. And it's something that I never, I never considered it, but I was, I don't know if I ever told you this, but um, the army was trying to heavily recruit me when I worked in the mall. Whoa. When I was like 20 and living in California, there was a recruitment office upstairs and they would come downstairs for coffee at like my coffee place and be like, you're tall and you're awesome and smart and blah, you should be in the military. And then they would have like the one woman who was there come down be like, see, she's in. It's great. And I was like, Mm-mm. yeah, ain't for me, homie. But they would tried so hard to just be like, join us. And I was like, no. Yeah. And then now imagine that in high schools. <laughs> like there are military recruiters in high schools right now doing that to kids whose frontal lobes haven't even developed. And they don't know what their life could be, but they're already getting the pressure of this is so easy. You can just join us and your life will be set. So I will never vilify the individual, but I do think it's worth looking at the structure of military. Yeah, and I actually think the structure of it has changed in most recent years, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that when you take, like, for example, your film, which is set during, like, the Vietnam era, when there was still a draft, that has a totally different vibe than what happens now, which is that it's primarily a volunteer thing. Right. And I and I know people who who have enlisted for different reasons. I mean, some people definitely like want to be in that world and like are ready to be in that world. Some people mm-hmm. join it to because it's a means to an end. Some people like need the structure. And like it's so it's a, I'm not again, every it's an individual choice to join something like the military, but I think that there's a tradition of of movies that have talked about like this military experience and i think that mm-hmm. it's like interesting because a lot of these movies are about male ritual and obedience and all these things that seem very fascinating to me yeah as a person who does not want to be told what to do ever <laughs> I'm like, what would it be like if somebody like fucking screamed in my face the minute I woke up? Like, you know, like it's just that concept. It's like, you know, what the it is a life that's so foreign to me, even though it was in my life, if that makes any sense. Oh, completely. Yeah. I worked I worked in when I was living in Alaska, I worked at a bookstore with a guy who was in the army. Or no, excuse me, he was in the Air Force. And he was so fascinating to me because he was kind of like the main character in my movie um, where you couldn't understand why he had joined Yeah, because he would like sit behind the counter and read Siddhartha and like read all these intense books and like hippie things and like very thoughtful things. And I'm like, what are you doing in the Air Force? Like it was just, and I never had the nerve to ask him because it felt like such a rude question, but it also never came up like why, but it was fascinating. I'm like, you work at a bookstore. You're absolutely a nerd. You're a very thoughtful person. Yeah. How does that work in conjunction conjunction with this aggressive, very structured male yelling in your face kind of life right. that you have? Well, that's the thing is that a lot of a lot of these movies, these military movies, everybody is like animal mother from your film. Like everyone is just like yes. you know wearing the bandoliers and just wanting to shoot guns. 
Um, so when you do see like a different character that's maybe not as aggressive about the experience, you're like, uh-huh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But I feel like, yeah, so much of what, you know, I think a lot of people have learned about the military is from movies. And I just thought, let's just talk yes. about it and see see what's up. I mean, I haven't seen your film since I think I was that age. And Ten. and I don't even... Re- <laughs> and it all kind of, like, runs together. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I, like for some reason, I'm like, Platoon, born on the 4th of July. Uh, you know, right. <laughs> like... Uh, there were so many military movies that came out in, like, a two-year span. Well, and I think that has a lot to do with the generation, right? Because you're, like, in the Absolutely. 80s and early 90s, it was a lot of, like, boomers who wanted to make movies about the Vietnam era. And I was just like, yeah, I think we were... People of our age were inundated with that kind of stuff, so... That makes sense. Totally. Well, let's get into it. My movie was released in 1987, again, when I was nine, ten years old. Um, (laughs) It was the screenplay is by Stanley Kubrick, Michael Herr, and Gustav Hosford. And it was directed by Stanley Kubrick. My movie is Full Metal Jacket. Are those live rounds? Seven, six, two millimeter. Full metal jacket. So my, I'll give I'll give a one t- one sentence synopsis. My one sentence synopsis is that um, this is a movie that focuses on the experience of one particular uh, army member from recruitment to engagement. Just as a simple way in, Perfect. because it's a very complicated movie. And I'll also say that we have talked about Stanley Kubrick before um, on a couple of episodes. So I'm not going to go too in-depth into him in this one. But, you know, his style of working is controversial for some people. He's very a very intense director, but he's also a very lauded director. Mm. And this movie is actually based on a book called The Short Timers by Gustav Hartford. And what I'm what's interesting to me about that is that he so he was Gustav Hartford released his, his book in 1979 and it was a semi autobiographical novel and he was a marine and it's about his experience in the Vietnam War um he was a combat correspondent with the marines during the Tet offensive of 1968 so he was a military journalist essentially and Michael David Herr, who wrote this with him, also released his own book. It's not this movie is not based on it, but he helped write this script. Um, and he was an American writer and war correspondent as well. And he wrote a book in 1977 called Dispatches, which is a memoir of his time as a combat correspondent for Esquire uh, during the Vietnam War. And that book. The New York Times book review called it like one of the best books to have ever been written about the Vietnam War. Um, I did read it when I was younger because, again, obsessed with the 60s and 70s. And I was obsessed with this time Mm. (laughs) of life and very interested in war from a pacifistic perspective. Um, And it is an excellent book if you can get your hands on Mm. it. It's fantastic. So what I like, what I... What I appreciate about Full Metal Jacket is that it tries, I think it's a movie that kind of throws you in and attempts to give the viewer the feeling of being a recruit. So you don't know, when the movie starts, you don't know anything about this world. And now you're being asked to not only do all these intense things, but to do them right the first time. And it's really intense. Like, so you're watching them get their head shaved and like kind of get into their barracks. And, you know, it's this really strange feeling of, these people who are used to being individuals now being forced to be uh, kind of conformist. 
so you see that immediately in the opening scene when they're lined up and the, the, the cast of this movie is incredible. Um, but their sergeant is Arlie Ermey. Uh, he plays Sergeant Hartman. And this is a really defining role for him. I feel like he had a long film career, but this is the one that is very memorable. And he's just going down the line, like screaming orders at people and telling them what they're in for. And this is also where he starts like giving people nicknames and kind of like sizing people up. Um, like he's sizing all these guys up. And the cast, again, incredible. So you've got Matthew Modine playing Private Joker, um, JT Joker. Adam Baldwin plays Animal Mo- Mother. Vincent D'Onofrio plays this character called Private Gomer Pyle. Um, his real name is Leonard, <laughs> but they don't call him that. Dorian Harewood plays Eight Ball. And what I, an interesting fact I found was that apparently Denzel Washington wanted to be in this film but had to pass. And he said it's one of his only regrets as an actor oh, wow. that he passed on this wow. role. But Dorian Harewood did a fantastic job. Arliss Howard plays <laughs> Captain or Private Cowboy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call him Cowboy, and he's from Texas. And it's just like you're kind of just getting a feel for like who these guys are. And Arlie Ermey says some of the most insane things you're ever going to hear, and also some of the funniest things you're ever going to hear. But it's a deeply offensive opening to a film if you're at all sensitive. Um, it's an offensive film. I would say, if you were at all sensitive, do not watch this movie. (laughs) Do not watch it. Do not watch it. And it's... On several levels, but... Just in general, it's like, it doesn't age well, but it does explain a time or or a mood and a mindset. More than anything, for me, it explains, like, the mindset of hyper-masculinity at that point in time. And... He says at one point while he's screaming at these men, he's walking up and down the aisles and they're all standing at the end of their their bunks. He says, if you survive recruit training, you will be a weapon. You will be a minister of death praying for war. And that fucked me up when I was a kid and it fucks me up now. <laughs> like to say that to a human being is wild. Yeah. But he's already preparing them for like, we're going to turn you into a minister of death. Right. It is insane. But then he also says things that are kind of, again, like funny. Like he looks at the Arliss Howard character and he's like, how tall are you? And he says he's 5'9". And he's like, I didn't know they stack shit that high. <laughs> like he says um, to, you know, the Vincent D'Onofrio character, Pile, he's like, oh, have your parents have any had any children that lived? I bet they regret that. Like, it's fucked up shit. Like, he's going for the jug. And it's this cacophony of, like, vitriol and homophobia and racism and just the horror of hyper-masculinity on full display. And, and I will say this, because when I was watching it this time, I mean, I haven't seen this since I was a kid, so obviously I'm processing this movie in a completely different way. You're, you feel like you're in it with these guys. Like, you're like, I feel like shit just yeah, as much as, like, these guys do. Oh, yeah, because it's relentless. It goes on for a very long yeah. time. It is relentless. And it does make you feel like shit to even watch this happening to other people. And imagine being in a room where not only are you being screamed at, but everyone around you is being screamed at. Like, it doesn't feel good as a human being. It doesn't feel like a natural reaction to want to just let that go. Like, I think a natural reaction is to want to defend someone who's in a weaker position than you. and Or for me, anyway, that's the natural reaction. And it would be really hard to be in that room and to know that, you know, this is how we're all going to be treated. And while he's giving out these kind of nicknames and sizing people up, 
you know, like he calls the Matthew Modine character Joker because as he's screaming, Matthew Modine makes a um, a joke in the voice of John Wayne, which he does throughout the movie, and kind of owns up to it. And then the sergeant punches him in the stomach. Yeah. Like, oh, you want to make jokes? Well, here's what's going to happen if you make jokes. Yeah. And it's just so fucking weird because you're watching this person who's like trying to get their bearings in this surrounding by like alleviating some of the pressure and the sergeant is not going to let that happen. He's like, the pressure is the point. Yeah. He's trying to toughen you up or whatever. And that when when he when when Joker first kind of comes out with that, like I was like, whoa, dude, what are you doing? What are you crazy? Like, exactly. You know, but then but and then later you realize that's just like part of his character. But at the mo- in the moment. Like I said, you're just so intensely like in this world with these guys that you're like, dude, are you on a suicide mission? Why are you like making a joke right now? Like this guy is going to murder you. <laughs> how, how do you think this would ever fly in any yeah. situation? <laughs> and I think that the 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 beginning of the film, you know, they're again, they're kind of submerging you in this life and, you know, the sergeant tells them to sleep with their rifles and pray and they start praying to their guns and they pray for the ability to shoot straight and it's just like, good God, like he's not giving them any rest from this. He truly does intend to turn them into killing machines. Mm. And he's particularly harsh on Pyle. Like he's particularly harsh on the Vincent D'Onofrio character. So Vincent D'Onofrio, something I read about this when he was filming. He gained 70 pounds for this role. And he said that when he was not shooting, when he was just kind of like walking around in his regular life, the people were afraid of him. Like women stopped talking to him. And like people were afraid of him and thought he looked like a killer, basically. Wow. And I was like, good Lord. Um, and he gets the brunt. Uh, like everyone gets shit, but he gets the brunt of Sergeant Hartman's vitriol. And mostly it's because he is visibly different from everyone else. He's he's heavier. Uh, he's more out of shape. He can't do a pull-up. Um, he can't get over the top of the obstacle course. Like, it's... He just has never learned how to do that. And he this sergeant does not have the patience to teach him. And he's starting to also make it harder for the other recruits to get through their obstacles and their, you know, everything that they have to do because he's holding them back. So Joker gets promoted to squad leader, and he's kind of assigned Pyle as someone to bunk with. So now he's kind of in charge of this guy. And what I think is interesting about that transition is that you can see that Joker is very gentle and patient with Pyle. He just has a whole different approach to teaching, and he really wants him to succeed. So he's very, like, like gentle and like, here's how you do this, and here's how you—while they're doing, like, really intense shit, like putting a gun together, or, like, like they're doing all this intense shit, but he's very patient with this guy. Mm. And he shows him how to get his legs over the top of this really high obstacle course. And it's kind of working. Like, he's starting to kind of shape up. Then, at one point, when they're lined up at the end of their bunks for inspection— Sergeant Hartman finds a jelly donut in Pyle's footlocker and basically decides that now whenever Pyle fucks up, everyone else in the squad is going to be punished for it because apparently, like, you know, they're not helping him get into shape. So he makes them do push-ups. He makes, he makes them basically take the physical punishment while Pyle just stands and looks and eats his donut. And it is super fucked up. 
Yeah. And it's very harsh to watch. What's also fucked up is what happens next, which is that at one one night, uh, the squad's kind of had it. They're like, "We this guy's really holding us back. Like, we don't fucking like him. And like, he knows it. Like, Pyle knows that they don't like him because of that that last jelly donut move. And they plan an attack on him. And basically, they wrap a blanket around him. He's on the top bunk. They wrap a bunch of bars of soap in towels and kind of strap him down with the blanket and gag his mouth. And then they all take turns beating him on his stomach. And even Joker joins in. Even though he's hesitant, he joins in and he really gets into it. Like You can see in his face that he's really getting into it. And it fucks Leonard up. It really fucks Pyle up. And he starts kind of zoning out. And he's not, you know, and they're all screaming and repeating what the sergeant is saying. He's not responding. He's just staring off into the distance. Like something in him really snaps. And he starts talking to his rifle. It turns out that he's an excellent marksman. So that's something that the sergeant is excited about because they're like, oh, finally something you can do right. And so when graduation comes around and they're part of the Marine Corps now and they're all being assigned, you know, different sectors that they're going to be in uh, because they're all they're going to go to Vietnam. Um, Joker gets assigned to journalism and Pyle gets assigned to infantry. But Pyle doesn't make it to infantry, even though Joker suspects that there's something wrong with him. They don't really, he doesn't really, he says it to Cowboy, but then kind of drops it. And on the last night of basic training, Pyle goes into the bathroom with his rifle and a box of live rounds. And Joker finds him there. And first he shoots the sergeant, and then he dies by suicide. And the movie is called Full Metal Jacket because what he uses is um, a magazine that was kind of standard issue for the infantry at that time, and that's what they called it. But when he says it, like he's sitting on the toilet kind of like zoning out, and he's like, yeah, I've got like a full metal jacket. And it's a very intense scene because you're watching Joker trying to negotiate with Pyle, who he'd previously been very kind to, but now has taken this turn, this dark turn with him. And then the sergeant comes in, guns blazing, and is like, put that fucking gun down. And like, you know, you know what you're fucking doing. Like, he just has no, he doesn't read the situation at all. And I kind of, as, as hard as that scene is to watch, I think Vincent D'Onofrio did an amazing job in that scene. But it's also, it was important to me that they decided to show that the side effect of all of that hypermasculinity and all of that anger and all of that yelling is not always positive. Like, it's not always something that turns men into these perfect killing machines. Sometimes it turns them into these really sad, hopeless, lost versions of themselves. Yeah, definitely. Like a, a total psychotic break. I mean, it was just like, that's kind of what happened. But you know what's interesting, too, is that, I mean, just speaking from like a Kubrick-style perspective, like this scene to me feels almost like the most of the signature kind of Kubrick style. Like, there's parts of this that remind mm -hmm. me a lot of, like, The Shining. Like, Vincent D'Onofrio's face, as mm -hmm. he's kind of going through this, like, psychotic episode or, you know, he's finally broke, right? It, it kind of reminded me of, like, Jack Torrance. Like, in, the, in those scenes yeah. of Jack Torrance in The Shining where his, like, face is all, like, you know, scrunched up and he's just, like, the, he just has this, like deadness to his face and 
you know, obviously like a bathroom stain with a lot of like overhead lighting and tiles mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. And I'm just like, wow, like, because this is the thing about, I think, Full Metal Jacket. And I'm like, listen, Kubrick people like do not get my face about this. But I, you know, there are parts of Full Metal Jacket that don't, it doesn't seem like a Kubrick film in a weird way. Like, I think it's like not right. as stylistic as some of his other stuff. But then there are obvious like references to maybe other things that he's done. Like, I mean, I just kind of the general vibe of the movie, which is pretty anti war, I would say, but also kind of has right. moments of like Dr. Strangelove, which is basically talking about the absurdity of war and the absurdity of like the military and this kind of stuff. Right. But absolutely. But yeah, this this to me, this scene in particular, I think, is really hard to watch. It's very intense, but then also has that kind of like it has that shining moment, I think, for me, is when I'm like, oh my gosh, like the faces are the same. Like his face and Jack Torrance's face, right? Absolutely. And it's got that same coldness and that kind of horror that horror edge yes. that he does where it's a psychological horror yeah. that he's introducing to you because you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, you're very on it. Totally. It's like, what's going to fucking happen? Oh, and when Matthew Modine, it's like, when he, that the scene right before when he's like, he's patrolling the barracks and then he realizes that there's somebody in the bathroom. That, to me, is like when Jack Torrance goes into the bathroom, almost. You know what I mean? It's that, totally. like, creepy feeling of, like, somebody's in there, he's going to figure out who it is, and it's just, it, it goes mm-hmm. very slow, but anyway. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's. It, I'm so glad you brought that up, because I think that he also, to me, kind of comments on the absurdity of war through the music in the movie. Yeah. So the music is so wildly divergent from what we're watching, and the music is like the surfing bird, and you know, like all like Nancy Sinatra yeah. and Wooly Bully. Really, yeah. Yeah. And it's like really it's it's a huge disconnect and it's very weird to watch or to listen to these songs and watch these scenes. So I think that you're right that he does that in a number of different ways, including the filming style. Yeah. And I think that it's it's you know, there's a there's a sharp turn after this scene where you don't even get to see anyone process what's happened mm. because you immediately cut to everyone's been assigned to Vietnam. So we pick up with Joker, and his his hair has grown in. That's how you know time has passed. Spanning <laughs> time. Spanning <laughs> time. Um, and it's like a little, like his, his hair's grown in, and somebody shows up with little round glasses and is like, Cute. I'm you from the future. <laughs> so he's a war correspondent. He works for Stars and Stripes magazine. He's a combat correspondent, and he's still joking around. Like, he jokes around with his editor, and he jokes around with the people that he's hanging out with. And when we first see him, there's a now iconic scene. I think this is now an iconic scene, primarily because this movie was sampled in a two-life crew song called Me So Horny. Mm -hmm. And basically, a sex worker is approaching these two GIs. One of them is Joker. Um, The other one is Rafterman. Rafterman. And you see them sitting down and the sex worker approaches them and in broken English says, you know, basically, do you want to date? Um, and I'm not going to defend how that scene looks now. It's like it was offensive then and it's even more offensive now. Um, there's nothing to defend. But it's interesting to me that it was sampled. It became a song and also MIA sampled part of it. That particular scene has been sampled by musicians so many times, and it's just very interesting to me 
that that is what they picked up on in this whole fucking movie and that that's what they picked on, up on in that scene. Because to me, that's a scene about a woman who's been pushed to desperate measures and has had to learn how to service these American men in order to secure her own safety. So the fact that it's like turned into like these party songs is very shocking to me. <laughs> I have a very, very complicated history and opinion about this because as an Asian woman, right, like this, I mean, it's like at at a certain point, this scene almost became, it like is the scene that launched a thousand Asian female stereotypes, right? Right. While at the same time, I remember dancing to Me So Horny at like, you know, many points of my life. Right. You know, and it's, it's hard for me to really form like a party line about it because the actress that plays this character is an actress. And I actually feel like she gave a funny performance. Like I feel like her character is meant to have brought some sort of comedy to this scene while at the same time being like, kind of a shocking moment in the film, too, because of what you've just said. You know, she's a sex worker. Her life has conditions to where this was part of what her, you know, she was doing in her everyday life, right? Right. And there's another scene, too, later in the film that involves a sex worker that I feel like is even harder to watch than this one. Absolutely. You know? I don't know. Absolutely. It's 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 very complicated for me because as much as it, it like, I mean, I, I, my mom is from Asia and my dad was a was a military guy met who met her in Asia. It's a common thing in this era for m- American military men to be in Asia, right? Right. And I am a product of that, right? So this right. is, um, you know, it, 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 I'm a little bit more i'm closer to it and i'm more sensitive about it but it's complicated because it's like yeah i mean it it has become such a cultural moment and you wonder why and how you know what i mean so i get what you're saying it's it's um and it's and it's an extension of that hyper masculinity where like the feelings of this actress and this woman were not even considered and she was presented as a joke and it didn't seem like there was any other way she was going to be presented like, they weren't going to dig into her story at all. They weren't going to dig into the, you know, the horrors of war, including the horrors of what war does to people in the area that they are fighting in. <laughs> like, they're not even going to consider that in this film. Um, and the actress's name, by the way, is Papillon Sue. She's credited in the, the movie as Papillon Susu. Um, but she, yeah, she's purely there for comedic effect as a way to kind of set the scene for what's coming, which is that Joker is very bored as a combat correspondent, because he's not seeing a lot of action. So he has time to sit around and joke and, like, talk to sex workers. And, you know, he has time for that because his role in war is being presented as less serious. Right. That that being a combat correspondent isn't as serious as being, like, in the infantry and on the front line. Yeah. But she was used as a way to to help usher in that tone for that part of the film. And I don't think she gets enough credit for... Um, being a great actress. Yeah, she was a Bond for... girl. She was in in a James Bond film. Yeah. So, 
yeah, she's awesome. And look her up. Like she's 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 a great actress. And I definitely think that um I have complicated feelings about that scene as well. Like it never, you know, I never want to skirt over this. Like I'm glad we can talk about things that are difficult and how it makes you feel as an Asian woman who, like you said, your parents met when your dad was stationed somewhere. You're like he was stationed in, <laughs> in Asia. Like that's where they met. Yep. And that's where they got married. So Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, so yeah, I think it's, yeah, I, it's interesting. And thank you for talking about that. And this is this is also a part of the movie that I think is part of what's affected me since I was a kid when I first saw it, is that there's a complicated history with war. And there's a complicated history with the Vietnam War, especially. And I think that, you know, when I first watched this movie... I would, you know, of course, watch it with my grandma, um, who has no boundaries. And, <laughs> and I would ask her, like, did that really happen? Like, did women have sex with men? And she was like, yeah, we talked about it. And we talked about, like, she was the one who told me kind of what it meant and talked me through my feelings about it. Because I'm like, wait, like, I thought Joker was this kind of nice guy. And now I'm kind of seeing him tease this sex worker. And I don't know how to feel about this. I don't know how to feel about her. And I know that she's supposed to be funny, but it doesn't feel funny to me as a woman um, or even as a little girl. It didn't feel funny to me. So there is a complicated history with war that I think a lot of people would rather forget and not discuss. Like, I think a lot of people, and you've discussed this before, where when your mom came to America and, you know, she didn't speak perfect English and she had a hard time getting jobs and people treated her poorly and talked down to her and like how hard that was for you. And I think people just want to ignore that part of the history of war. And I don't think that's right. Like, there are people that are affected by war in several different ways, but there are also, you know, women like Papillon Sue and, like, the actress Papillon Sue and the character she's portraying. Yeah. It's fucking hard to watch. Like, this is why, this is, like, a very complicated subject. But this also leads into, you know, as you're saying, this also leads into what happens in the next scene, which is that, you know, Joker might be bored, but he's getting sent off to combat. And at this point, this is a person who, or a character who is, he's wearing a peace symbol button that really rattles his uh, superiors, but he also has Born to Kill written on his helmet. And at one point, somebody asks him, like, what the fuck's going on? Like, why are you wearing a peace symbol button and you have a Born to Kill, like you've written Born to Kill on your helmet? And he says, I think I was trying to suggest something about the duality of man. So it kind of goes back to what we were saying about people who join the military for very different, various reasons. Mm -hmm. And sometimes a lot of people who are in the military are still considering what it means to be in the military. So I thought it was important that they included that scene because I didn't want it to just be kind of glazed over that this is someone who has these opposing views and he says he's on the side of peace and he doesn't want war and he gets in trouble for it all the time, but he's actively in the military. So he, he gets sent off to combat and as they're going, they're in this helicopter with this fucking maniac behind a machine gun who's just shooting into open fields. And he just says, like, haha, like, ain't war hell. And Joker asks him if he's ever shot women and children. And he's like, I can't believe you're just, like, wildly shooting out of this helicopter at people who have nothing to do with this war. And so I think, again, like, the... the the part about the Vietnam War that I've always been interested in and attracted to is looking at it from the side of the Vietnamese people, um, or at least trying to understand what happened in Vietnam to the Vietnamese people. So it's just a wild trip that he goes, and now he's part of this unit, and you know he meets Animal Mother, who has I Am Become Death 
written on his helmet. And again, all these subtle nods, because that is, it's a quote from the Bhagavad, Bhagavad Gita. And it was referenced by J. Robert Oppenheimer when the first atomic bomb was detonated. Oh, wow. And he has that written across his fucking helmet because that he's, again, like another maniac who just lives to kill. And he also is having this interaction where this is that scene that you're talking about that's difficult with this second sex worker that comes on the scene. And he's having this this interaction with the the character 8-Ball, played by Dorian Dorian Harewood, like I said. And 8-Ball is black, and he's having this conversation with him, and he's saying the most racist, horrible fucking shit. So for me, I'm looking at this scene and I'm thinking, this is supposed to be like a real band of brothers, connected unit, core, like we're all turning you into the same kind of guy who would support someone. But how do you do that when you're when you're a black man fighting alongside a white supremacist? Or you're a black man fighting alongside this guy who says all this racist shit and seems to like outwardly hate you. And if you were not in the military, would not even give you the time of fucking day. Yeah. And I've asked my family members about that. Like, what did it mean for you to be in the military and be black? And they kind of didn't want to talk to me about it, honestly. Like they kind of just brushed it off as if like, well, you know, There are tough things with every part of being in the military. And I'm like, but that's an extra layer of tough that is rooted in further demoralizing you as you're doing the job they taught you to do. Yeah. So it's just so fucked. And like, you know, again, like, I don't want to ruin the end of the movie for you, but, you know, Joker is weirdly thrown into combat. Like, can you imagine going to your job, like your nine to five job, and then somebody hands you a gun? And I was like, oh, also kill that guy. Like, it's fucking mayhem. And so I think that they really... That Kubrick really kind of showcased that mayhem in a very interesting way. And a very, there's a couple of really heartfelt, sad moments, a lot of really heartfelt and sad moments for me. But at the end of the movie, it's just like you're watching Joker kind of turn into the thing he never wanted to be. Yeah. And I, it's like the, the effect of being in the military or the effect of being part of this war for him is that it turned him into more of the born to kill and less of the peaceful pacifist. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like he had his convictions challenge in this one moment, you know? Right. And that's what I think the movie is essentially about, is just this idea of, like, what war does to people and how it changes people and how it makes them have to confront these very, like, hard moral questions, you right. know? And... That's how I feel when I watch this movie, too. I actually mm-hmm. think this movie is good. Like, I'm like, I, I think this yeah. movie is, like, very thought-provoking, you know, despite the fact that there are uncomfortable moments that, you know, for sen- if you're sensitive, you're not going to be able to hack the the language and that the, there's, you know, it's, it, it's all obviously taking place in a different time, too, right, where... Right you know, racism and misogyny and homophobia and things like that just were part of the conversation in that, in those ways. And as we're talking about the military here too, which is like another right. layer. But I think that the what makes this movie is so thought-provoking for so many reasons. And I do think that yeah. I, I, I do end up kind of seeing it through the lens of the Joker character, right? Because he's kind mm-hmm. of the like reluctant participant like he right. he needs to keep some kind of ironic distance between him and his experiences, which is why he's always like doing the John Wayne impressions, and he's like 
ironically, wearing the helmet while wearing the peace pin. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you're in that moment of of him, you know, again, without giving the end of, the ending away where you're like, you're kind of going, okay, now what then, dude? Like you were talking about how bored you were and how you wanted to be mm-hmm. in the shit. And now you're in the shit and you're having this moment and where you have to basically like make a very, very hard choice. And so, I don't know, that to me is what makes a good movie, is when you're kind of rattled by characters and the decisions that they have to make. And It's very complicated. I think think it's worth it to watch again. I watched it when I was younger, and it really, I just really imprinted, or imprinted on me in terms of how demoralizing and hard and, and again, hyper-masculine I, I didn't understand what that life meant. So if I looked at it only from the perspective of my family members who'd been in the military, we would have been like, oh, well, it's great and it's fine and it's easy and you seem fine. And then watching movies like this, I'm like, wow, it helped me ask different questions of the people I knew who were involved yeah. in this military life. So I appreciated that. But yeah, I think it's a good movie too. I think it's worth it. I think it's, again, complicated, challenging, and it's worth it to read the books that the 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 book that the movie is based on. The book that the other writer Michael Hur wrote, Dispatches. Um, if you're at all interested in this time uh, that of our history, yeah. Well, and I and, to, and I think to your very first point about like not going too much deep into the Kubrick world because Lord knows people have done it and <laughs> have done it better than we could. This to me sort of feels like the least Kubricky film at least from the right. ones I've seen. Well, thank you for giving me the time to discuss that. Oops. I know I went very long. But... Thank you for allowing me to watch it again. I mean, you know. Well, your movie was a first watch for me, so I'm very excited to talk about oh, it. Oh, very interesting. Well, I am too. This movie is a little bit different than your film, but I feel like it still talks about like the culture of the military and like mm-hmm. specifically like the masculinity topics that we talked about just now. Um, So my film for the theme Drop in Give Me 20 is a movie from 1967. It was written by Gladys Hill and Chapman Mortimer from um, a book by Carson McCullers, and it was directed by John Huston, and it's called Reflections in a Golden Eye. Have you ever been collared and dragged out into the street and thrashed by a naked woman? Now this is maybe unintentionally I think this is the third almost consecutive movie that you've picked that was based on something Carson McCullers wrote. I know. Wait, I know that. Yeah, because we did The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. I know that. It wasn't that long ago, so I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not complaining. Oh. I'm just saying it's like a very interesting subconscious choice that you're making. I know. I I don't. She's a great writer. I love it. I'll take it all day long. Yeah, no. I Look, and like. I think you know this about me now. I'm a Georgia girl. Carson McCullers was originally from Columbus, Georgia. And I just love Southern Gothic literature and film. And so, I don't know. I'm sorry that it was so recent (laughs) that I brought another Carson McCullers thing, but I... Do not apologize. I was just watching it. And because I'd never seen it before, and I was researching it, and I was like, oh my God, there's another Carson McCullers. It's going to be great. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, no, no, no. I uh, thank you for saying that. And, and you know, I got to tell you, too, like, the there was a lot of, like, 
the Southern Gothic writers in like the 40s, 50s, and 60s were, there was a lot of film adaptations coming out. Like, so- Totally. I mean, it doesn't surprise me that, because I think The Heart was, a, I think The Heart is a Lonely Hunter came out in like 68, and this came out like in 67. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, I mean, she was like all the rage at this moment. Totally. So it doesn't- And interesting, like it's interesting too to see that she was writing about these- complex worlds that were so different. Like, everything she writes about is so different from the last thing she wrote. Yeah. So I just, I love that. I do too. And like, you know, I it has been a long time since I've read Reflections in a Goldeneye. So I'm going to probably do that soon. I'm going to, I'm going to go back and read Ooh. it. But the movie version. I would join you. Is, I have been deeply fascinated with this movie version for many years. And it's interesting because I think at the time that it came out, a lot of critics were like, this feels very over the top, very melodramatic, which of course is why I like it. You know me. <laughs> I like give me more. I know. I'm like, can a melodrama be too over the top for me? It cannot. <laughs> no such thing. The high drama. They, like I love the high drama, but also I will argue that is a southern thing. Like people love drama in the south. So a southern melodrama. Of course. I gotta love it. I gotta love it. But I've seen this movie like a half dozen times in my life. I mean, mm. and for some reason, I've like logged them all on Letterboxd. I don't know why. <laughs> like, <laughs> I want to keep telling people I've rewatched this movie a bunch. So. Like, I went in again. I went in deep. I know. It's crazy. But I I, I think that this movie is a Southern Gothic classic. And it's, it's you can't I, talk about a soapbox I can get on, but it is. One of my favorite late 60s Elizabeth Taylor performances, okay? It was excellent. Which, as you know, it in my estimation, this is when Elizabeth Taylor becomes a legend for me, right? Mm-hmm. Her mid to late career is just a, simply an obsession for me. And, I, and, and you know this about me, <laughs> if you've ever been to my house, which no one has except for Danielle, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I have an Elizabeth Taylor themed bathroom. I mean, I'm just is awesome. And 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 honestly, like I've talked about this before in prior episodes, I just think that when when she moved out of her like young ingenue period and moved into the 60s and late 60s, early 70s and beyond, that's when like you know, a lot of people were like she's over, she's crass, she's a drunk, mm. she's, you know, with Richard Burton like she's trashy. And I'm like that's when I love I love her because I think that's when she became like a full person. And yeah, she started making great choices in yes. film and different choices and like broke out of her mold. And- yes. And she wasn't afraid to appear unladylike. And mm-hmm. I, and I just feel like let a woman live, for God's sake. Like, what the fuck? Like, go to Europe and drink too much and make some weird art films. Like, come on. Like. What she she gave you so much already. Like you can't you don't have a say in what happens next. Yes. Let her live. Yes, let her fucking live. But anyway, th- like I could I could truly go on. But the director of this film, though, is John Houston of the great Houston family of rat actors. <laughs> Which <laughs> I'm sorry, you're gonna have to go and listen to the graveyard shift episode to know what we're talking about because that will make me laugh for fucking ever i <laughs> truly every time i say the barrymores or the houston's i think about those rats from graveyard shift 
<laughs> Holy shit. Oh, God. Um, it is such an in-joke reference, but it makes me laugh every fucking I know, time. And I, and I truly don't care if any of y'all get it. It makes Danielle and I laugh, and that's just how it's going to be. So, But we've talked about John Houston before, obviously, many times, because we did The Treasure of the Sierra Madre and Fat City. And, you know, if you listen to those episodes, you know that John Houston did a lot of movies about outcasts, which makes him perfect for the Southern Gothic tradition. This one definitely included. So a one-sentence synopsis of Reflections in a Golden Eye Infidelity, repressed homosexuality, voyeurism, and murder collide against the backdrop of an army base in the South. Damn. Yes. So this movie... Watch it again, just based on that one-sentence synopsis. Thank you. You can use that for the back of the VHS tape if you want. So this movie is centered around pretty much just six characters, really. Um, The main ones are this married couple named Major Weldon Penderton and his wife, Leonora. And they are played by Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor. Okay, so already you got the big Mm -hmm. guns in the film. And they're living on a military base where Major Penderton is teaching at like a military school. And it's interesting because at the beginning of the film, you're you're like, oh, they're living in like a house on a military base. And I've spent a lot of time on military bases and I've stayed on them for extended periods of time. And I will say this, most people are living in barracks, just like Full Metal Jacket. Um, but since Penderton is a major, they would probably have an actual house and a yard and everything. So if it seems like it's like, oh, why are they living in a house with like, uh, a hammock and everything. It's because they're officers and they're higher exactly. higher ranks, right? Yeah. Anyone who's not an officer is living in like a condo apartment style like situation. Yeah. And like uh the military base that my dad retired from, they still we still go there constantly because guess what? They got cheap groceries. <laughs> so if you like if you have <laughs> access to a military base, go to the grocery store because you don't pay tax. <laughs> And it is something my parents will do for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. Get them get those cheap ass groceries. And there's like an entire section of the of the base that's near their house that is basically like a neighborhood for the officers. And apparently, like there was this Burger King that was next to the neighborhood that one of the higher ranking officers like had shut down because he couldn't stand the smell of the burger. <gasps> Whoa! <laughs> yeah, he's like, shut that shit down. I don't like to smell those burgers. So, oh my god! Yeah, so I just imagined he was in his like Elizabeth Taylor hammock, right, hand drawing invitations, and was like, "Kill the Burger King." Holy- <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't like flame grilled. Yeah, I don't want flame broiled. <laughs> Fuck a flame broiled burger. So here's what I will say right off the bat about this film. And Marlon Brando. And it is this. His Southern accent is so mumbly, you will have to watch it with closed caption subtitles. I was actually thinking, I'm like, was this the beginning of him starting that style of acting for himself? <laughs> I mean... And what is what is his goal with being completely unable to be understood? I know. I, it's... 
I mean, I got to tell you, there are times where I've watched Streetcar Named Desire, but I'm like, come again? What did, what did you say? So I, I don't, I don't know. Like I, I watch it with subtitles every time I've seen this film because I was like, I need to understand what he's saying. He's a main character. Completely. So if that doesn't matter to you, that's fine. But I'm just saying as a tip. Well, he's also playing like a very rigid guy. Yeah. So you kind of like need to un- you need to hear him when he's talking and understand what he's saying because he's so locked in that like he uses a real economy of language. So when he's saying something, you're like, oh, this must be important. A hundred percent. That's literally my next note is that Major Penderton is very intense. Like, and obviously, you know, the archetype at this point. And of course, his wife, Leonora, is the exact opposite. She's very social, extroverted. She's throwing parties at their house. You know, and this is like, again, Elizabeth Taylor in her full, like, purple majesty. Like, she's just sort of, like, beautiful and and vibrant and all this stuff. And, of course, she's married to, like, the most uptight military motherfucker to ever live, right? And she's also carrying out an affair with one of her husband's colleagues, right? This guy, Lieutenant Colonel Morris Langdon. And he's played by Brian Keith, Dr. Brian Keith. So... She's basically like, my husband is works too much, and I I I've got to like go get my kick somewhere else. So and, and even though you're also in the military, you're more fun than he is. Yeah, <laughs> she's like, I'll take it. You're I right across the street. It's a fine. slightly r- less rigid military guy. <laughs> and like, and Langton and Leonora, they like ride horses together, and Leonora is obsessed with horses and. In particular, this one horse, Firebird. And Firebird is like, he's a loose cannon. <laughs> Big time. But Leonora has figured out how to handle him, right? Right. And here's the thing. So, they're, so they go out, uh, their affair consists of like riding horses together and like fucking in the shrubs. I don't know. This is what they do. Fucking in the brambles. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that a... Uh... A Blur song? Was that on the Snatch soundtrack? (laughs) (laughs) Not the Snatch soundtrack. (laughs) Here's the thing, though. Langdon is also married, right? And he is married to a woman named Allison, who is played by Julie Harris. But they're essentially estranged after their baby passed away a few years prior. And the grief of this situation drove Allison to cut off her nipples with a pair of garden shears. Okay, they mentioned that so close to the top of the movie <laughs> that I was like, "What? A, I did not know what this movie was going to be about. Didn't expect that. Did not. And it's, Did not expect that. And it's a moment where you might actually miss that fact because it's being spoken by the Elizabeth Taylor character and she's like doing her whole like, you know, Blanche Dubois, like, and I can't believe she had her nipples cut off with a pair of garnishes. And you're like, wait a minute, what did she just say? Go back, Leonora, don't just pass by that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, she's recovered. And now, she's just now being, she, you know, after all this time, her grief processing, now everybody just thinks she's quote-unquote crazy, right? Except the only person in her life that, that understands her is her confidant, 
And his, he is a Filipino houseboy named Anacleto, and he's played by the actor Zorro David. I have awesome. so much to say about Zorro David, even though there's virtually, there's no information about him pretty much online. I mean... Give me everything you got, because he's fascinating. Yes. And, like, I I know that he... I think he was only in, like, one, maybe two movies, but then eventually he became a painter, and he's since passed. But, like, this probably, for me, was the first time I'd ever seen a Filipino person in a classic Hollywood movie. Right. And I was blown the fuck away by it. Like, I was like, there's a, you know, Filipino in this fucking John Huston movie? Like, what the fuck? Like, this is insane. And he actually, like, has a character, and he has lines, and he has thoughts, and... Yes, and he's gay, and he's, mm-hmm. you know, like... It's just such an interesting character. There's a couple of things. I think I have a book in my library that talks about him briefly. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, if you were to Google Zorro David, like, there's no, there's very little info on him. You'd have to, like, track down either articles or books or something that mention him. But there's just, like, I did not find a lot of biographical information about him, unfortunately. So, right. And I just think it's because he wasn't in a lot of films. But, um, obviously, a hero. A fucking hero for me. So... Rest in peace, oh. King. Awesome character. Rest in peace, King. Yes. <laughs> so here's the thing. Okay. Everyone know everyone around the base pretty much knows that Langdon and Leonora are having an affair, especially Allison, right? And to make matters worse, right? Major Penderton hates his wife. Period. Like he just can't stand her. You know, he's so caught up in his own fucking masculinity and his own issues that I think that the the party line is that she emasculates him and she has made him a cook essentially and he just can't handle it and so he just has so much contempt for his wife um mm. more on that in a second obviously but um here's who I want to get to because this character in the <laughs> film is it's the hinge that the entire story is resting on okay there is an enlisted officer meaning he's he's not a you know not not an officer, he's a regular soldier living in the barracks, right? His name is Private Williams, and he is played by the great Robert Forster. Rest in peace. <laughs> Rest in peace, King. We love him. We've talked about him before on this podcast. This was his very first movie. Oh my goodness. And let me tell you, he comes in with a fucking bang. <laughs> as soon as I saw him, I was like, oh. I make that's this makes sense now. Yes, this is the Millie pick. This makes sense. <laughs> he's very cute and <laughs> and also is a loner. He's very <laughs> mysterious. He's and a weirdo loner. Weirdo Jock. loner. He's he's kind of like the Joker of reflections in a golden eye. Yeah, in that way where he's very atypically military, right? Absolutely. And in 1967. He has this hippiness to him, right? Because he's he loves horses and he he takes walks by himself and he's not like part of the gang, right? Which is which is interesting. I think that in 67 he would be seen kind of as a hippie type, right? Right. He comes to the Pendertons at first as sort of this like errand boy, like he's like clearing away branches and shit. Um, and then apparently there was an incident where he spilled coffee on the major and like the major has always held a grudge for that more on that later 
but then at, at one point, one day, Williams becomes like this full-on legend for the major. Because the major and Leonora and Langdon, actually, are out riding horses one day. And in the distance, they see Williams. And he is riding a horse bareback, completely naked. Okay. Bareback and bare ass, as, as Lenora said. <laughs> so Robert Forster's entry into Hollywood was that he was naked and riding a horse. I mean... A legend. Say no more. <laughs> and here's the thing. Weldon is disgusted. <laughs> but he's also like, Huh? Because his his the previous interaction that they've had is like he cleared the brush wrong, like he cleared too much, like he was already kind of like you spilled coffee on me. You don't know how to clean the brush. You're like a weird horse whisperer to my wife's pets. Like what is what's the point of you? Yes, but then he's like, but he's naked and free, and he's riding a horse. And there's other context clues to support this in the film. But I might be gay. And obsessed with this young private who has mm-hmm. no rules for his life, unlike me. You know, so this is what we're getting at, right? Is that Weldon is repressing his sexual feelings for men, right? right. And he is in the military. This is 1967. Like, I think, you know, it, it's a problem for him to be gay in this period, Right? right? So, look, if this wasn't enough of a fraught situation, Williams has been sneaking out of the barracks at night to look in the Penderton's windows, okay? And then he gets bold enough to start breaking in to their house to, like, fool around with Leonora's lingerie and perfume while she's fucking sleeping. I mean... Love triangle <laughs> to the extreme. Yes. So it's a lot, a lot of high Southern drama going on right now. Okay. So as we've just alluded to, the major has a lot of repressed gay energy to burn off. So he goes riding horses alone one day. And this time he decides that he's going to ride Firebird. Okay. And of course, Firebird takes off. And this scene is actually stressful to me where he's like, yes. the the horse is going at high speed and like Marlon Brando is being like whipped by tree tree branches and shit. It's genuinely and it goes concerning. it on for a long time. <laughs> like it goes on for a while and you're like, damn. Yes. Firebird is fucking him up. Right. And at some point, like he falls off the horse a bit and gets dragged and then the horse finally stops. And then the major out of sheer anger, just starts beating the horse with a switch, which is terrible, right? And then the major just has a full-on breakdown. Like, he just, like, beats this horse, and then he just collapses, and he just starts, like, crying hysterically. But then here comes old naked Williams right out of the woods, and he just takes Firebird away, and the major is like, what the fuck? Like, he's just unable to process what is happening, right, with all of it. And this is actually, the next part is is my favorite slash craziest part of the film, which is that Leonora finds out that the Major took Firebird out and then beat her horse. Okay, so she's back at the house, throwing a party. All the 
military guys are like circled around her while she's like telling her party tales. Then she goes out and sees Firebird and realizes that Firebird is fucking injured and that Williams is basically like tending to the wounds of this animal. And she loses her shit. She comes back in the house with a whip and then just starts fucking riding crop (laughs) working her husband's goddamn face in front of the entire party. That scene made me so fucking nervous. Because I'm like, she is hitting this this rigid military man in the face with a riding crop in front of all of his friends. Casey, you might have to drop in the clip where she's beating him and she goes, my horse, my firebird. Cozy bastard beating my horse, my firebird. They should sample it in a disco song. It's like, my Absolutely. horse, my firebird. <laughs> it's wild. And I feel like Marlon Brando was getting hit in the fucking face. Like, I was like, yeah. So anyway, the film spirals out of control from this point. The the major begins to stalk Williams after this whole incident with the in the woods with Firebird. And Williams is, like, still sniffing panties or whatever the hell he's doing in there. And the craziest part is that Allison is seeing all of it. She's seeing, mm-hmm. watching it from the windows, right? And And yet, everybody thinks she's nuts, right? So she's like an unreliable narrator and everyone, she's seeing everybody for who they are. Right. And she can't be trusted because she, you know, has had trauma. We've we've definitely heard this tale before, okay? And at a certain point, she just gets so fed up about Langdon, you know, and, and the affair that he's having that she asks for a divorce. And guess what Langdon does? He ships her away to a mental institution. God. And he's like, oh, but it's a nice one. Give me a break. Give me a break. And, you know, Anacleto at a certain point produces this painting to Allison has a peacock. It's like a painting of a peacock with his golden eye. And there's this conversation about how the eye is reflecting something grotesque, which is the metaphor for the film, right? Right. Because this is a movie about looking, right? It's about seeing the ways in which people who are part of this very rigid military structure are repressing desires and true selves. And, you know, obviously the Brando character is the best representation for that because he's, like, this conflicted gay man. And, I mean, I won't give away the ending, of course, but I think that plays out in a very, very intense way. Yeah. You know? And I, I don't know. I mean, to me... This film, it doesn't have the combat elements that your film does, and it doesn't really, like, go into that at all. But it is about the lives of people who are in the military and sort of, like, ideas of masculinity and sort of, like, honor and that kind of stuff. And, you know, to me, it's just very fascinating to me to just sort of watch a movie where people are keeping secrets because it's part of, like, a protocol yeah. for the lives that they have. Well, right? that's, I loved it because, I and I think it fits the theme so well because I think that it it is interesting to me to see the lives of people on base because it's not something I'm familiar with. So I think yeah. that, you know, that, that rigidness extends to how they live. Like, it's not just yes. like it ends when they, you know, fall out of formation. Like, it, it's their whole, their whole life is consumed by... Yeah being in the military and they have very militaristic approach to their own feelings and to their own families. And like, that's important. I thought it was really cool that you picked this movie. Yeah. And like, 
honestly, like if you're really into, you know, Southern Gothic stuff and 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 want to take on, you know, a movie that's a very high drama, this is perfect. And I will say that John Huston actually released a version of the film that was gold tinted. Ooh. And um sometimes you can catch it on TV. I won't I will say that as a former TV programmer, I would program it. I think the I gold, watched it. I think that was the, the gold first, version. Yeah, I think that was the yeah. version I watched on um, Apple TV. Yeah, so there's, I think that that was initially how he wanted it released, but then everyone was like, no, make it regular. What are you doing? <laughs> we can't have this gold. So now, but it was fucking great. Yeah, yeah. Warner Brothers released both versions, I think, at cer- a certain point, but it's, um, I love this movie. I love, the the topics that it talks about. I love the actors. I love the vibe. I love Carson McCullers. I love the South. And um, yeah, that's kind of why I picked it. So I loved it. It was, again, a first watch for me. And it was really, really interesting and fun to watch. I was yeah. like, I don't know where we're going, but I'm along for this ride. The yes. actors were incredible. I'm really glad you picked this. Well, and listen, I'm really, really glad that you wanted to go down this road with me this week because I don't know. This is just like again, like the the military is very is a very big part of my life and my upbringing, and you know I think I had a very atypical military kid experience because you know I know a lot of people who have military families and they're expected to also go into the military when they're grown up mm-hmm. and etc. I I feel like. Um, that was not my experience at all, but I definitely have lived on military bases. I've, you know, been to parties where there's only military people there. And like, you know, I, I definitely, I don't know. To me, like I said, I think through the movies, like I, I, the military is a very interesting conduit to talk about lots of different topics. So I agree. I agree. Thank you for going down this road with me. I went so long. I'm so sorry, guys, but also I'm not sorry. We need to talk about it, and sometimes you're going to get a big old episode from us, and this is the one. They love it. (laughs) They love it! Well, listen, if you want to email us, we are at isawatyoudidpod at gmail.com. Also, send us questions for bonus episodes. We like them. Um, And you can find us on our social media at isawpod on Instagram and Twitter. We also have merch. Go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right Shop to find our merch. And you already know this, but our bonus episodes are on our main feed now. So new new episodes are dropping on the main, main feed every third Thursday of the month. And our old bonuses, uh, we're just trickling them out slowly every few couple of weeks on Wednesdays. That's right. Do you want to give them the films for next time? Okay, next week's are bound to be lighter than the last <laughs> couple of weeks we've had. We've gone down a dark well for the beginning of the year. But then we're going to lighten it right up because our next two films for next week are Superman 2 from 1980 and Grease 2 from 1982. Wow. I don't know. It might be dark. You might have to hear my feelings about Christopher Reeve as Superman. I I promise not to bring up the the Ukraine. That's all I can say. (laughs) I can't promise that it won't be dark, but I will not bring up the war in the Ukraine. On this light <gasps> entertainment <shit>. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Alyssa Daniel, it's a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. Always, always. That was so fun. Thank you so much. Till next time. This 
This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit ExactlyRightStore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.